Welcome to the Ottawa Business Journal's live broadcast of remote work, time theft, and other challenges. I'm Michael Kern from the Ottawa Business Journal. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are setting a new record with this live broadcast with more than 500 pre-registered attendees watching on YouTube, plus our audience on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, as always, we want to make this a lively and interactive experience for all of our viewers. And that really means we want to solicit your questions and comments uh, at the end of today's show. And I think we've got a topic that's going to uh, uh, elicit a lot of those uh, questions. So listen, there's a lot of things to love about remote work, both for employees and employers. Uh, let's think about less time commuting. That's good. More flexibility. That's also good. The ability for uh, employers to recruit talents pretty well anywhere in the world. That's pretty neat. Uh, but for employers, remote work brings some challenges. And we've talked about them uh, over many of these uh, podcasts with uh, our guest, uh, Eamon Harden. For example, more freedom and flexibility for employees inherently demands more trust. And that trust uh, is necessary in some cases because remote work has certain risks. Today, we'll be talking about some of those risks with our guest from employment and labor law firm Eamon Harnden LLP. And equally, we won't even learn, we won't only learn about the risk, but we'll learn how to mitigate them. So uh, we've got a jam-packed show here today. So we're going to uh, dispense with some of the banter we typically do, and we're going to introduce our two very special guests today. First off, we have Keisha Podetz, labor employment lawyer and partner, and Eamon Harnden. Hello, Keisha. Hi, Michael. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to have you here. And Jake Tolton, labor and employment lawyer, also, of course, with Eamon Harden. Welcome to you, Jake. Hi, Michael. Hi, Keisha. Well, here we go. We're going to take a look at our agenda right now. Uh, in our first topic, we uh, often break these shows down to three, and we're keeping with that, uh, consistent with that format. In topic number one, we'll talk about employees who are not working when they should. In topic number two, we're going to talk about employees who are not working where they should. And topic number three, how to mitigate the risks associated with remote work. And sometime around 12, 25 or thereabouts, we're going to come to you, our live audience, with questions and answers. Uh, as I said, we're going to move right into topic uh, number one. Akisha, as I said, this is all about employees who are not working when they should. And let's just set this up in a little bit of a way. Uh, Keisha, in, in some of the planning for today, we talked about this being a little bit of a controversial topic because, you know, we're using the word time theft. But, yeah, help ground us here a little, Keisha. Sure. And and I think people get really worked up about that language. I think we've seen adjudicators uh, be concerned about employers using it. I mean, time theft really essentially means that, that there's time that an employee is being paid for work when they're not working. So um, this is really the issue, the primary issue we want to talk about. But it's not that we're saying that all employees, uh, Michael, as we talked about, are, are trying to sort of scam their employers. That's certainly not what we're out here to suggest today. But we do want to draw your attention to some of the risks and how you can mitigate those risks that are inherent in that. And, and I think, you know, remote and hybrid work is, is really here to stay. Three years ago, it was thrust upon many of us. Uh, with very little planning. And, and now that it seems to be here to stay, both for retention, recruitment, sometimes practical reasons for employers, 
um, you know, we're looking at how that's actually playing out in practice. And so what we wanted to do today is make sure that that employers are really just aware of some of the challenges, um, some arrangements around remote work can face and, and how to try to mitigate those risks. And, and so the first topic, as you said, Michael, is about employees not working when they say they are. And there's two issues here we're going to talk about. And, and one is an employee, as I said, not working all of the time they've claimed they've worked. And the second is an employee who might be working outside of their regular hours of work. And, and so, um, you know, when an employee is, is uh, not working some or all of the time they claim they've, they've worked, an employer is deprived of their end of the bargain, which is the compensation they're providing the employee uh, for the time that they're working. And, and I'm going to turn it over to Jake to discuss a recent decision out of BC that provides some insight into how a decision maker in BC viewed an employee who, who chose to engage in such contact. Uh, conduct and at least in BC the potential consequences that could flow from it so Jake over to you thanks Keisha so yes there's a there's a recent tribunal decision out of British Columbia that's garnered quite a bit of uh, attention in the media and what I'll do is I'll just uh, I'll briefly walk the audience through through some of the facts so what happened was there was an employee she was hired as an accountant and the terms of her employment contract provided that she would work remotely so she was working from home as an accountant at first, it was all smooth sailing. The employment relationship was healthy, but eventually the, the employer had some concerns um, surrounding her performance. And after a few months, they installed a time tracking software on her laptop. And now it's important to remember that they did this with her consent and this software monitored her activity and, and was able to provide the employer with information about her day-to-day -day activities. So not long after the employer had installed this software, they noticed that she had billed time to a file as an accountant, but the timekeeping software indicated that she hadn't actually ever worked on that file. So upon this discovery, the employer reviewed all of the data in the time tracking software. Um, and this revealed that there were about 50 hours of unaccounted time that the employee had billed to various files, but um, that the timekeeping software indicated she had not actually worked. So in light of this, uh, the employer made the decision to terminate her um, with cause and did not provide her with severance pay. The employee decided to litigate the termination. She argued that she was entitled to unpaid wages for at least a month of severance pay. The employer, on the other hand, alleged that it had terminated her employment because she had engaged in time theft. And since it had, it had terminated her employment for cause, she was not entitled to the severance pay. So this issue was brought in front of the tribunal and the tribunal found that um, as had been recorded by the time tracking software, the employee did not work on the files for the time she had built. And this led to a number of unaccounted hours. The tribunal accepted that the 50 hour figure that the employer had, employer had put forward, which was calculated by using the data from the timekeeping software um, was an accurate number uh, and that the employee had not in fact worked those hours. The tribunal confirmed that the employee had engaged in time theft and that this had led to an irreparable, irreparable breakdown of the employment relationship. They found that the employee was not entitled to severance pay. An important note from the tribunal in this decision is that um, they reiterate um, sort of the well-established principle that trust and honesty, are, and honesty are essential to an employment relationship. 
but they noted that this is particularly true in a remote work environment where there's no direct supervision over employees. Yeah, Jake, let me just uh, jump in here. Uh, so really interesting. By the way, I love the fact that Eamon Harnden brings uh, real cases because of the narratives uh, in those cases. And I think when we're thinking of this uh, Bessie case, there's a few things that our viewers uh, and listeners should really note. There's a, there's a few specific items here. Uh, do you want to touch on some, some of the things? Uh, because I think that there was, a, this was a very kind of black and white situation, for example. Sure. Yeah. And, and look, Michael, this is certainly a welcome decision uh, for employers, but there are a couple of cautionary notes that I, I would like to draw to the audience's attention. Uh, first and foremost, this is a decision from a tribunal in, in British Columbia. So th there's no guarantee that an Ontario court would um, come to the same conclusion. Um, and, and employers should not be taking this decision as a sort of uh, carte blanche to terminate employees where there's any sort of suspicion of, of time theft. I think what was critical in this case was the, the volume of reliable evidence that the employer had to prove that there was in fact time theft. And, and they were able to um, establish this through uh, the data that they had from the timekeeping software. Uh, I think absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Jake. Yeah. Just on that point, uh, I think it's also a, an important nuance that the employer made the employee aware that they were installing the software. So the employee wasn't able to raise any privacy concerns in that respect either. Great, great point. And Keisha, we're going to come back to you for a second here. So um, I don't think anyone's advocating, certainly not you and not me, uh, that if you think employees aren't working uh, the hours that they should, you should go right to termination. That's not what we're saying here. So if an employer has some questions about whether an employee is working the required number of hours, Keisha, what type of thinking process should they go through? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to answer that quickly because it's always going to be fact dependent. But I think your first stop should always be sitting down with the employee and asking some questions. Uh, we don't immediately jump to termination. We try to sort through it. And I think uh, as well, Jake, uh, may have outlined already in that case, the employer had sat down with the employee and had had some discussions with the employee. So so I think that's the first stop, but um, uh, you're right. No way should we be just immediately jumping to termination upon suspicion. We're gonna do some investigation and the first stop will be sitting down with the employee. And that monitoring, we're not gonna go there, but that <clears throat> I just wanted to point out that entire monitoring of employees, we talked about that in a previous uh, live broadcast with yes. him and Hardin, which is available on replay. So we're not going to talk about that, but there, if you want to do that, there's a whole other, uh, there's a whole other component to uh, employment law that, that deals with that. So we're doing really good. So we're off to, uh, off to the races here. That's topic number one. So topic number one was really about employees not working when, or the required number of hours in issue uh in topic I'm sorry of michael if i could just jump in oh, on yes, that yes. point there were a couple of other points we wanted okay, to go just, ahead and, and i'll i'll get to them very quickly here um and one of them is i think concerns around employees inadvertently or purposely working more hours than what they're sort of contracted for which may lead to unexpected or unanticipated overtime claims and these often come up sort of at unusual times, perhaps when the employment relationship is ending or it sours in some way. Um, and so it's very important, and, and Jake will speak to this more towards the end, but to set out those hours of work and be clear about it. The other consideration is 
what happens when someone's working at home and there's a question around a workplace injury that occurs and whether they're in fact working at the time when the workplace injury occurs. And so again, setting scheduled hours of work, established hours of work to be clear that, you know, midnight to, to four are not considered work hours can be helpful in that regard. And, and just quickly to touch on two cases that do provide a bit of, um, I guess, direction to us on where uh, the workplace tribunals might be going, workplace safety tribunals might be going. Uh, we have a case in Quebec of a woman who was call center employee working at home. Uh, she took a break uh, to, I think, make her lunch. And on the way down the stairs, she tripped and injured herself. And the tribunal concluded that indeed was a workplace injury because it was essentially incidental to her work. And so that was compensable. And, and so I think many of us were thinking, you know, what, what are the parameters of the limits on this? And um, uh, our research group did a bit of digging and found actually a pre-pandemic uh, decision of the Ontario Workplace Tribunal um, of a home worker who similarly injured herself uh, sort of in between work hours. And the tribunal said, look, it's not a 24-7 obligation on employers. They don't always have to be, you know, concerned about an injury. And they thankfully clarified, you know, someone falling out of bed when they're sleeping, when they're making dinner, that's not going to be compensable, but where it's incidental. So it might be someone, for example, in that case, taking a bathroom break and injuring themselves on the way to the bathroom. So I think employers need to be aware that those are risks. We can't eliminate those risks, but we can at least condense it by being clear about hours of work. Yeah, great, great point. Thanks, thanks for making them. So as you said, we started off by talking about time uh, theft in the Bessie case, <clears throat> often on on uh, discussion boards and that else, I'll, I'll hear people say, yeah, but what about all the extra time people work? So uh, there is a concern about, you know, understanding when someone's working and uh, you, you laid it out well there in terms of uh, what happens if they get injured, right? Or, uh, or something like that. That's excellent. So there's kind of thought time theft and then just a uh, a general le level of clarity about when people are are working for for a couple of reasons there. Okay, issue number two. So again, issue number one was really focused around this issue of when. Uh, in issue number two, we're going to talk about where. So uh, as uh, both of you know, that advances in technology mean that people can be working, at least in theory, anywhere in the world. Uh, employees might therefore, you know, want to work uh, in February when it's minus 32 in Ottawa on some beach in Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Keisha, you know, tell us, tell us more about why employers should be concerned about where someone is working. Right. I mean, look, it's certainly tempting to provide flexibility to employees. I mean, with the view that as long as the work gets done, who cares where it's being done? Um, but it's, it actually is pretty important for a whole host of reasons to consider where employees are working, because without having some sort of parameters or an approval process in place, some, some requirement to actually know where your employees are working, um, we could inadvertently be submitting to a different jurisdiction, a different law, et cetera, and, and really opening up unanticipated risks. And so at that most basic level, when we're thinking about it, you know, we want to ensure wherever our employees are working, that the work location is both safe and secure. And so, you know, of course, there's factors like, um, you know, can it be reasonably safe from an occupational health and safety perspective? And we know what that looks like in Ontario under our Occupational Health and Safety Act. And within Canada, if an employee is working elsewhere in Canada, generally, the obligations are fairly similar from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. 
But what about when it's outside of Ontario? We, we don't know. There might be completely different obligations upon employers who have employees working in uh, Bahamas, Bermuda, Hawaii, wherever. It might be very different. And, and so that's definitely a concern from my perspective. I think we also think, need to think about data security and privacy. We certainly hear a lot about that in the public sector, but I think it's equally applicable to many uh, employers in the private sector. So asking ourselves, Will allowing an employee to work from a particular remote location compromise our data security in some way? You know, whether it's through government uh, intervention or involvement, something can be seized at any time, uh, anything like that. And, and can we mitigate those risks effectively? You'll also want the employee to ensure they can continue to apply with any applicable privacy and confidentiality obligations to you as the employer but also any you might have to your clients that those employees may be working, uh, doing work for. Yeah, and, and Keisha, I was going to ask you about um, employees that might might want to work from very remote or secluded locations. So, you yeah. know, not just a, a resort in Mexico, but some far-flung part of the world that's uh, really hard to access. Tell, tell us about that. Well, and I would say even some people's cottages, right? Cottage country isn't always uh, internet-friendly. But, but I think these considerations often are practical in nature and it is, it's about, do you have a good internet con, uh, connection? Are you able to maintain regular communication with the employer and others as required? And, and, uh, and then finally, what if they need help? Are they somewhere where they can safely and quickly get help if they're injured or need help when needed? So it's, it's just a different set of issues, but, uh, but regardless of where they are, if it's remote, they come into play. Okay. And we're going to move quickly to number three, but before we do that, any other factors uh, that uh, employers should consider when uh, when an employee wants to work in a remote spot or in a di different jurisdiction more specifically? Sure, yeah, and I'll try to get through these really quickly. And I think primarily it's going to be what are the laws of that jurisdiction, right? Do your employment agreements still apply? Probably not when you're outside of Ontario, if that employee is based elsewhere. You might also inadvertently become party to law to a um, litigation or legal action in another jurisdiction that you hadn't intended to because the employee is there. The Employment Standards Act here may not apply. There might be some completely different legislation that applies to you in another jurisdiction. And so I could run through many more examples like that. But my advice generally to my clients when they're contemplating an employee working outside of Canada is let me get you the name of an employment lawyer in that jurisdiction because I can't advise you on that. The risks are unknown to me, but they exist. But other issues I think are going to be taxation related, payroll related, potential insurance consequences, both for an employee's health benefits, for their own personal taxes. Uh, again, I raised privacy and data protection issues, but also legislation that might apply in other jurisdictions. In the European Union, we have the GDPR. We also have the California Consumer Privacy Act. So, Michael, there's a whole host of factors that I think, you know, I've tried to just hit the highlights, but uh, many for employers to consider. Yeah. Uh, and before we move to issue number three, I just want to point out for our live viewers that we'll be coming to them in about five, six, seven minutes uh, for your questions. I note some are piling up there in my comments. You can comment on whatever social media platform you're on. So YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and Twitter. Okay, Jake, issue number three. And and listen, uh, I think people are pre might be feeling, employers might be feeling freaked out at this point. It's like, what have we gotten into with remote work? But one of the things we always try to do, Jake, with Eamon Harrington, is talk about how to mitigate the risk. So 
uh, as Keisha said off the top, I don't think we're rolling back completely remote work. So uh, we've talked about a lot of challenges. Uh, Jake, let's talk about how to mitigate some of those. Uh, over to you. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I think I think it's clear at this point that remote work is is here to stay, at least to some extent. Um, and the best way to mitigate risk uh, with respect to remote work is to make sure that the employer and the employee are on the same page. Um, for new hires, that can um, have terms baked right into their employment agreement that speak to um, all of the details surrounding their remote work. So um, that could be the type of work to be done, uh, workflows, collaboration processes, uh, mandatory meetings. Will they have days that they need to be in the office? Um, what are the hours they need to be answering the phone? When should they be answering emails? Uh, it, there, there are a number of details that can be contemplated um, in such an agreement. And, and for existing employees, uh, we would strongly encourage employers to, to develop a remote work policy um, that they have all employees sign off on. And, and the remote work policy would, would outline uh, similar details to make sure, again, that, that the employee and the employer are, are on the same page here and there are no um, questions left unanswered um, with respect to the remote work arrangement and, and when the employee is expected to be available and where they're expected to be available. Uh, so, Jake, I can I can guess that that policy is going to include hours and it's going to lo include location because we just talked about those two things. But what uh, else could or should be addressed in that type of policy? Well, obviously, it'll be unique to uh, to the to the uh, employer and the employee relationship, but certainly things like uh, remote work related expenses, uh, office furniture, utilities, insurance, even e Internet. Um, there are also questions about uh, who's going to pay for travel expenses when the employee needs to come into the office or travel back to their wherever they're working remotely. Um, in some instances, if the employee is working from a, a cottage setting or, or somewhere uh, outside a major urban center, you may want to have specific requirements regarding telephone and internet connectivity uh, for the remote workplace. Uh, in some instances, depending on the nature of the work, you may want um, rights and responsibilities set out with respect to data security and the protection and, and of private uh, or confidential information. Uh, so really, uh, the upside of these these remote work policies is that they can be tailored to uh, to each specific situation to meet the needs of both the employee and the employer. Um, listen, Jake, before we go to our live questions, um, I know Eamon Harnden has a lot of large employees, employers, pardon me, in town, uh, like colleges, universities, hospitals, uh, large companies that have unionized um, uh, unionized employees. Spend a, a, maybe a minute before we go to live questions talking to us about how uh, in a unionized workplace, you, there might be some different considerations. Sure, Michael. So, so unionized workplaces can't unilaterally implement workplace uh, policies unless they they satisfy a few conditions. Um, and the first one of those conditions is that it, the policy has to be consistent with the applicable uh, collective agreement, which which isn't a surprise to anyone. Um, the policy has to be reasonable. It has to be clear and unequivocal. Um, and then I think perhaps most importantly here, it has to be brought to the attention of the employees affected before the employer can act on it. So all the employees need to be well aware of what they're agreeing to um, before the policy is implemented. 
There's some big discussions going on today with regards to unions in Ottawa. So uh, let's let's stay on topic, though. All right, let's make that shift into our uh, question and answer period. And we've got a bunch of them uh, as anticipated. So I'm going to roll through a few of this. Uh, first off, hello, Barbara Carr. Thanks for saying hello. She's out of the country, so we've got a bit of an international audience here <laughs> demonstrating that uh, you can work anywhere. Uh, I, I think I'm going to come to this one, but I'm going to show Yolanda your comment on screen for a second. And I, th I think we're going to ask a question about this, but it just says, I think a clear policy would be helpful in navigating through these types of situations. So uh, I think it's a very sensible uh, comment to make. Um, maybe we'll start with this one. And sorry, Michael, if I could just add in, yeah. too, I think I think a policy globally about the general principles, but the other um, piece that we're often doing for sort of the one-off situations are remote work agreements, where you can address the very particular circumstances that might relate to a single employee. Thank you for drawing the distinction there. Okay. So it's not just a policy, it's a completely separate agreement. Uh, you might. We should, mm -hmm. we should emphasize that. Um, I'm going to ask this, although I'm not sure you can comment on it, uh, but I'll bring uh, Sean's comment up quickly. I'm always curious about cybersecurity. This is him speaking, of course, concerns on this. If a cyber breach occurs on an employee computer, how is liability and ins liability insurance going to look at that? Any comment or that's outside your well, jurisdiction? It's, I mean, it's outside of our bailiwick, but what I can say is the insurers will say you need to talk to them about those things before you just, uh, you know, free an employee and assume you're going to be insured. And so I think cybersecurity is a big thing for insurers right now. It's a special, a separate heading often in insurance policies that adds a higher cost. So I think those are certainly questions to put to your uh, insurance broker. Yes, Their phones I, will be ringing too. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Let's take a look at uh, Jennifer Jarvis's uh, comment. She says, in terms of workplace injury, is there a way to have a release of liability for employers for injuries sustained in remote locations? Any thoughts on that? So it, can you have in this policy or this separate uh, uh, agreement a kind of a clause that says, as an employer, I'm not responsible for any of it? I wish that we could. Uh, <laughs> the problem is, you know, depending on on which jurisdiction we're talking about, you can't contract out of legislation that applies to you. So, so whichever legislation applies to you, if it's Ontario, Quebec, other jurisdictions, generally you can't contract out of that by by agreeing that you're not liable. Um, and and I'm not sure about other jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah, that sounds. Uh, and I, I think we just touched on this. Dan is uh, fallhand is asking kind of a similar question. If an employee wishes to work from a third uh, location, can the employer demand a release from liability? And I think you're saying, if only it was so simple. Is is that what I heard from you, Keisha? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that would maybe, right? I, I guess what I could say is if, if you retain counsel in that other jurisdiction and there's the potential, we didn't talk about this, but there's always the potential for some wacky dual jurisdiction situation. If you've got counsel from both of those jurisdictions who who say yes, that would be enforceable in our jurisdictions, maybe. Okay, so you could request a release, but don't you know? Don't expect it to hold up if uh, if challenged necessarily. We're not going to exactly. get into this, but I just wanted to say to Murray, he's asking about the right to disconnect. We actually had an entire webinar on this. So again, if you go back to the Ottawa Business <clears throat> Journal YouTube page, you'll see that one. You can just Google, in fact, right to disconnect, and you'll you'll see that right away. Uh, let's look at Charmaine Matteau here. So 
she is asking if a remote work contract indicates the province of employee employment pardon me but doesn't specify that it must be at a home must the employer agree an employee wants uh, to work elsewhere for an example at a cottage so i guess it's um uh, if it's not a home, is, are there some sort of uh, uh, legal consideration to be made here? I think if you're talking about the same jurisdiction and you have the ability to ensure some basic sort of health and safety measures are, are going to be met there, then I think that there's less of a concern. And then touching on the pieces that Jake mentioned, right, the connectivity uh, those sorts of situations. And then the final point, we haven't really gotten into this yet, but you want to make sure they're covered by insurance to work from those other types of, of locations. Okay. Oh, that's really, uh, that's really interesting. And in fact, that's a little bit of a so segue. So there must be a debate going on in our YouTube channel here because you'll lands back saying in some states, you can uh, have the employee take photos of their workstations to make sure it's a safe place to work for. What about that? So, you know, so I, you know, I got we're, we're potentially going to work out an agreement or a policy, but what about the employer asking the employee to, for some sort of, I'll use the word evidence, it sounds like a weird word or proof that the, that their environment is safe. Is that, does, is that sensible? Um, so I, I've actually had clients that have done sort of a, a live scan of a room. So that's the office you're going to be working in. Okay, is it safe? Can you just do a sort of camera scan? Okay. Um, you know, I think there are potential privacy considerations. I, I frankly haven't thought it entirely through, um, but I, I suspect there may be some. But but I think there there has to be the ability for an employee to assure itself in some way short of attending at the workplace, right? So if your home office is your workplace, I think it's fair game to ask for some sort of evidence to ensure health and safety are being satisfied. Jake, okay. do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I tend to agree. And I think uh, that, it, that that has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and um, the insurer should always be uh, involved uh, to the utmost extent. So I think from the lot, there are more questions, but I think we've talked about the themes that they've addressed. And there are some uh, key takeaways. We want to leave some time for that, Keisha. So sure. why don't we go to our key takeaways and we'll uh, we'll continue. And, and by the way, for all of our viewers, one of the things we're trying to do here is connect you directly with the great people at Eamon Harnden so you can ask their questions of them. So we'll show some contact information here in just a second. But Keisha, let's go to our key takeaways, because I think that kind of wraps it up in a nice way. Yeah, thanks, Michael. And, and you know, all, all we're able to give you is a few teasers today in this session, but hopefully enough to at least wake you up to a few issues, because really at the end of the day, we, we keep saying this today, but remote work in some way is here to stay. And, and effectively managing a remote workforce may be challenging, but, but it's going to be necessary going forward. And so just some key takeaways from what we've talked about today. And, and the first is really around setting clear expectations with respect to regular hours of work. And that's going back to issue number one, because that will ensure first a work, remote workers availability uh, and mitigate against risks like time theft, uh, unwarranted overtime claims, I should say unwarranted, unexpected overtime claims and liability for injury outside of working hours. And, and then secondly, it's a great idea to have a central approval process in place for each employee's remote work location. So that allows an employer to appreciate the applicable risks of where the employee is asking to work, determine whether to accept the risks because you might not be prepared to, 
and then to take steps to mitigate the risks where you do decide to take on that risk. And then third and final, um, remote work agreements and policies, as we've said, can be really effective tools when properly implemented, consistently applied, and then reviewed periodically. Like any policy, you don't just put it in place and not look at it again for 20 years. So uh, that's that's uh, really it for, for us, Michael, and, and thanks yeah. very much. Yeah, listen, I want to personally thank you. As we said off the top, you know, there are lots of pluses to remote work, but it, it has led employers into this gray nebulous area. And I think if uh, if we've demonstrated anything in all of the live broadcasts we've done with Eamon Harden, it's the fact to me that you need some professional advice on this. And that's a nice kind of segue. We'll bring up uh, how people can contact you, uh, both Keisha and Jake. So there, there you go right there. Their information, both phone number and email is on screen. Uh, I did want to indicate to all of the registered users, you will get a follow-up email from OBJ with this and other information. And the last thing I was going to say before I let you go, Keisha and Jake, it just reminds me um, that we have amassed a significant amount of material here. You know, uh, the right to unplug, um, all these uh, questions. We just got another question about, uh, you know, can I uh, can I put time tracking equipment on? on uh, an employee's computer. So, so go back, my point is, go back and watch some of those other YouTubes with some of your co great colleagues at uh, Eamon Hart and Keisha and uh, Jake, thank you very much for joining us today. As always, we appreciate your expertise and the way that you make this relatable to uh, employers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael, and thanks Thank everybody. You, Have a good afternoon. All right, uh, let's just sign off here. Uh, I wanted to indicate that uh, one of the things you can do if you're an employer and you want to stay, keep abreast of all of the issues, both the legal issues, uh, HR, uh, could be even be technology or property. You know what you do? You go to the website, obj.ca. Uh, every day it's updated throughout the day with new news and information. And we are, in fact, doing a lot more uh, HR content. So if this topic interests you, I'm, I'm sure you're going to like some of the content over here. And by the way, have you heard the news? Uh, if you visit the website, you're going to see something called OBJ Insider, which is a new membership program bought, brought to you by uh, OBJ. Check it out. It's the top right button. You'll see a red button there. I highly recommend you also subscribe to OBJ Today, our weekday email newsletters. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And if you, um, if you subscribe, you'll hear about um, all sorts of issues, including some upcoming webinars. Uh, I encourage you to follow us on social media. That's a way of, uh, under, of, of being alerted to when we're alive. And for you YouTube uh, uh, viewers, uh, that's where we send most of the registered viewer. I want to ask you to click the red subscribe button now and the little bell icon. And if you do that, you'll know that when we're uh, live with other videos. So that's all the time we have for today. Another great episode. Big thank you to Eamon Harnton, uh, LLP, uh, you know, the experts when it comes to employment and labor law. So check them out. Uh, and uh, I wish you a good afternoon. And uh, if you like the video, uh, and you, you should share it with some of your colleagues, maybe the HR department, maybe a company CEO. Important to share this information. Very practical. All right, everyone. That's it for today. Bye-bye.